Just like every other podcast, what is up, everybody? Welcome to the members only Drunk Turkey Show. So let's talk about some cases first, or one of the cases, and then we'll go into, you know, y'all's questions. So first thing I wanted to talk about, and we're probably going to talk a little bit about this on tomorrow's live, is the new documents that are coming out. I haven't read them. I've seen them. I've heard about them. Uh, let's get familiar. Usually I'll read this on my own and, and get an idea of, you know, what's being said and what's going on. This time you guys can can help me with that. So the first one is a motion requesting clarification of the sealed order. And again, like I said, I haven't seen any of these. These are the first time I'm opening them. There's two pages. This is um, it says a district of court and the second judicial district of the state of Idaho in and for the county of Lataw. State of Idaho plaintiff versus Brian C. Koberger, defendant. Uh, this is a motion requesting clarification of sealed order for disclosure of IgG information and protection order. Uh, so this is some more IgG stuff. Like I said, man, you know, I, I was listening to and hearing some stuff. I, I think it was on some kind of documentary or whatnot. And they were talking about how how great Ann Taylor is of an attorney and how good she is. And I, I think, you know, they're probably correct and they're probably right. But when it comes to this case here, if she's this amazing lawyer, and all she's doing to defend this guy is try to use 1880 law to get the grand jury thrown out, which, you know, like the prosecutor said, you just go in a big circle and you get it done anyways, and you'd have to go forward anyway. So it was a, uh, a pointless argument. And then you look at the IgG stuff, right? another pointless argument. You know, it, it, it won't affect the STR. It won't affect the DNA that was collected from Brian Koberger's dad uh, in the trash. That IgG stuff is completely separate from those things. And the STR profile that matched to Brian Koberger, his dad's DNA was used for that warrant or part of that warrant, has nothing to do with the IgG stuff. The IgG stuff is like a lie detector test. This is, and basically what it is, is the IgG said that, go look at Brian Koberger. The way you test the accuracy of the IgG is you go and look at the suspect they're pulling it at and test them. If it comes back a match, that means you did the IgG correct. If it comes back not a match, that means you did something wrong. You know, this is equivalent to somebody taking a lie detector test and failing said lie detector test because this test didn't go in Brian Koberger's favor. And then having your lawyer ask the court to put in that lie detector test because they want to somehow throw out the lie detector test because the person that was, you know, running the, the lie detector wasn't you know, uh, let's just say he wasn't qualified. How does that affect the other part of the case? You know, the, the real evidence that was taken out, the real stuff that was put there, you know, the, the, the warrants for his phone pings, uh, the, the test on the DNA from the sheath to him, you know, the, the taking out the DNA from his dad or the trash out of his dad's or finding DNA out of his dad's trash. Those are completely separate and completely legal. That's where I'm, you know, where I stand on this IgG stuff. I find it frustrating. And I, I know that the state of Idaho hasn't had a situation like this, which is the reason why they're having to go through this entire process. And they're hoping, you know, when this is over, nobody's ever going to have to ask for this stuff again, because it's not going to be relevant at the end of it. And so they have to go through this process. Unfortunately, it's the first one here. So it has to be entertained, but you know, the IgG and its usage and it's, you know, the hidden names or whatever you want to call it, of those that matched isn't an uncommon tool from law enforcement. It's just uncommon to Idaho. It's common in many other places and it has precedent in those other places. So those things are going to be brought up. You know, the, the judge was ready to go to court. He was ready to sign for a trial date. He's ready to go now. That kind of tells me that he's probably thinking that this argument with this IgG stuff probably isn't going to go anywhere. You're looking at 
you know, Brian Kovacar not having an alibi, most likely, which he's already been turned down, his grand jury indictments being turned down. And based on the fact that they're ready to go to court, his argument for the IgG looks like it's probably going to be irrelevant, which it should be. You know, what, what, what leg do they stand on? You know, they're hoping that somebody in, in cross-examination says something that was different than what they wrote down or said, you know, things like that. And like I've said multiple times, memory can be tricky, which is why you want to push out, you know, court as long as possible, especially if you're, you know, not innocent. I'm not going to say that he's guilty, but if you're innocent, you're going to want those that, you know, maybe have seen the crime or things like that. You're going to want those things to be fresh. You know, the longer it goes, things forget, you know, if you're, if you're the innocent person and, you know, that could work against you. But that's no indication that he is that guilty or not just my observation and my speculation. All right. So let's continue this. The court's sealed order states that no individual in the family tree may be contacted by the defense and any agent of the defense without prior authorization of the court after a showing as to why such contact is necessary material to the preparation of the defense. The defense has, uh, as part of necessary work, has previously identified family members and and work has been conducted. The defense does not expect to use the protected material to identify people to contact without further order of the court. However, the defense needs to continue its investigation with witnesses and resources generated from the source outside of the protected materials without worry. The plain language and the protective order could be interpreted to prevent that work. Uh, the defense seeks clarification or a specific language of the protective order. You know, what, what they're trying to figure out and what they've said in their court, in their court hearings and and their files that they were documented was one was was there anybody that they used DNA or used their ancestry or whatever I'm gonna call it ancestry it's not ancestry I'm just gonna call it that is there a you know is there somebody that opted out of allowing you know their DNA to be used to find somebody the other thing that they said was that were any other of Brian Koberger's family members investigated who were around you know, the 1122 King Road residence on November 13th. That was specifically his defense when it comes to that is that basically he has a family member that could have committed this crime, even though his DNA matched five point something octillion times, you know, to the DNA on the sheath. And it matched also as the, you know, the son of the person whose DNA was recovered out of the trash at his family's house. They still think that there's somebody out there who has his DNA that's a family member that wasn't checked. Like, like I said, I mean, the, the arguments here are are so bad. I mean, you go and look at Richard Allen and you go look at the Delphi case, you can see a huge difference, huge difference between the arguments. And I don't even think that Richard Allen is completely innocent in that situation. I think there's there might be some more, you know, there, you know, maybe perhaps another person or two that were involved in this case, whether it be physically there or, uh, you know, by some other means, whether they notified Richard Allen that they were going to be there or, or something or gave him an account so that he can contact one of the victims. I don't know. That's like I said, a lot of speculation on my part right there, just kind of saying based on his words that he was there, what he was wearing and what he did. I find it hard uh, that he wasn't the guy on the bridge in the video saying, you know, guys down the hill. Let's uh, let's continue this. Yeah. It's just so happened a family member who just so happens to be in the area while BK doesn't have an alibi on the night that he just so happens to have his phone off. And this person also, who's a relative of Brian Coburger, just so happens to be the similar build, height and weight. Um, obviously, the, the eyebrows you know, could be a family trait. Um, but is the, you know, the stylish Hyundai Elantra something that is passed on through the Coburger family's you know, tree as something that is everybody has to have? 
You know, everybody, everybody driving a white Elantra in that family. I don't know. It's a bad argument. All of it is a bad argument. I, I still don't see, you know, so many people defend this man, not to the extent where I'm saying that, you know, they don't think he's innocent. No, that's one thing. But to the part where it can be anybody else, including FBI, the chief of police, neighbors, anybody else, anybody else. But it's not Brian Coburger, not the guy whose DNA is there, not the guy who had his phone off during the time of the murders, not the guy whose car is seen on camera in the area. And they can tell that it's his car because, you know, the missing license plate and things like that. You know, not him. There's no way in hell he could have done it. No way. In fact, I had somebody say that if he did do it, then we wouldn't have known because he would have been so good at it that he wouldn't have left evidence. I mean, that's almost damn near warship. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's, it's, it's like worshiping the guy. If you're going to that extent to say those things about this guy, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. It don't make sense to me. I understand being suspicious about the eight hours that, you know, 911 wasn't called and, you know, the roommates calling friends and stuff like that. But to completely say that this guy is 100 percent innocent without looking at all the evidence and what little evidence is there that we can see uh, makes it really difficult for it not to be him. And then when you look at his so-called defense and what they're arguing for and, you know, the fact that he hasn't given a real alibi, I, I just don't see where we're looking at a guy that. Uh, you can say is, you know, this is like making a murderer part four or something. I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. It don't make sense. He's not from the area. You know, that's one thing that people say is like, oh, you're not from the area. That's the reason why. But neither was the detective that was investigating the case. He wasn't from the area. And I think there's what, 30,000 people there. I think 20,000 is part of the school. So they couldn't pick anybody else. And you're going to go look at your applications for good suspects instead of your history and your log of people that have been arrested for violent crimes. You have this whole database as a police department to find a good fall guy. And instead of looking at that database, you go look at the guys that are applying to be law enforcement. You know, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand how that fits any box whatsoever. I don't know. I hope somebody can make it make sense one day, but I doubt it'll ever happen. All right, let's continue this. Uh, the defense as part of necessary work has previously identified family members and work is being conducted. Defense does not expect to use this pr protective materials to identify people to contact without further order of the court. However, the defense needs to continue its investigation with witnesses and resources generated from sources outside of the protective materials without worry of the plain language of protective order could be interrupted to prevent that work. So they don't want to scare somebody off by saying that we use that word. They're not going to want to talk to us. It's kind of weird. You would think that, you know, somebody who doesn't want to get involved would be uh, reassured to be a part of the protective order. You know what I mean? Because their information is not going to come out. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading that wrong and I'm finding it confusing. Uh, the defense seeks clarification of specific language to the protective order. All right, let's continue. This is ob objection to defendant's motion to change venue and request for a scheduling order. Comes now the state of Idaho by through the Latal County prosecuting attorney and objects to the defendant's motion to change a venue as it pr is premature. Uh, the state requests that the court set a trial date, a briefing schedule for a defendant's motion, a hearing date for the motion to be heard, and a deadline supporting memorandum, affidavits, and witnesses disclosures sufficiently in advance of hearings so that the parties can adequately prepare. Defense motion of change of venue is premature without the sufficient basis. Defendant has not provided the court with adequate information to conclude that the Latal County jury could not fairly and impartially decide the defendant's case. In Idaho, a motion to change of venue within the discretion of the trial court, state versus win, Idaho's appellate courts look at several factors while determining whether a trial court ex exercised is discretion in deciding a motion to change venue, including affidavits indicating prejudice or absent of prejudice in the community and testimony of the jurors at Ford Dyer 
as whether they had formed an opinion on the defendant's guilt or innocent based on upon adverse pretrial publicity. Other factors for consideration are whether the defendant's challenge for cause in any individual jurors, the nature of pretrial publicity about the case, and the duration of time between the publicity and the trial itself. The Idaho Supreme Court has also explained that publicity itself does not require a change of venue. So, you know, and I get all this, and that's basically what they're saying, right? That's it. They, they're, they're saying, no, it's premature, and you haven't given us a reason as to why. So this tells me a couple of things. This tells me that this whole, you know, um, pushing it to you know, summer of 2025, maybe even summer of 2026. It's just a tactic. You know, if they're willing to do this right now, well, it's premature instead of you know pushing it back and holding off as long as possible. That tells me that that was a tactic. Now, why are they doing that? My opinion, it is for this motion of venue uh, to change the venue. Reason being is, well, one, the prosecution has played their hand. I've said this multiple times. They want to do this in the summer and within that six week period that there is no classes in high school and or in, in the university. And Taylor's brought up doing this in 12 weeks, which would completely blow their schedule for wanting to do that within that specific time. Right now, is it fair to the victim's families? Is it fair to the, you know, the defendant for this to be moved one year because of a conflict in logistics when it comes to the location of your courthouse and the location of the high school and and the amount of people that is expected to be there? If you can't handle it, put it somewhere that they can and don't violate these guys rights of a, you know, especially Brian Coburger, of a quick and speedy tri- uh, trial and for the rights of the victims to have their justice as well. You know, postponing this longer and longer uh, doesn't allow for closure. But, you know, for me, I think there probably wouldn't be any closure at any point. Now, even if he came out and said, this is why, this is how, this is what was going in my mind, a very similar situation like, like BTK when he did that in a uh, court setting. I, I don't see that that is really going to give anybody closure on it. It's Maybe it's um, an idea that, you know, they know what happened, but the pain is always going to be there. It's not going to go away. I think if they end up getting the change of venue, don't be surprised if this starts getting scheduled sooner. It's basically also the other thing I'm trying to say. Like I said, I think they're just going to try to get the venue changed once they get that. And we might see a court date much sooner than we think, maybe even earlier than maybe around March of 25. All right. And so this is the state's response to defendant's motion. All right. State's response to defendant's motion to allow certain experts and investigators protected access to view the IgG materials and motion requesting clarification of the sealed order for disclosure of IgG information and protective order protection order. Uh, so another IgG issue there. I'm not sure what they want based on the scent, the, the top. Let's read this a little bit. Come now, state of Idaho and by and through Layton County prosecuting attorney and respectfully submits following responses to defendant's motion to allow certain experts and investigators protected access to view the IgG materials filed on February 1st, 2024. The defendant's motion requesting clarification of the sealed order for disclosure of IgG information and protection order filed on February 8, 2024, regarding the expansion and uh, of protection uh, order to include Dr. Leah Larkin, uh, Becca Barlow, and Stephen Mercer. The state does not object. Regarding the expansion of the protection order to include unnamed criminal investigators, unfettered access to the IgG materials, the state objects. Oh, so they haven't even named who these people are. Yeah, I'd object too. I wouldn't want to just give out that information to just anyone. At minimum, individuals who have access to any IgG materials should be named. Further, defense has failed to make adequate showing as to why such individuals need the information for preparation of the defense. The defendant states that the information is requested to investigate how and when Mr. Koberger was identified as a suspect. This information can be obtained by the Tuhi letter 
from the FBI and the state dated November 28, 2023. A state objects to the balance of the IgG materials being provided by the criminal investigators and the reasons articulated by the court in this protective order. So I, I, I'm going to try to find this. I don't know what this is. Tuli letter from the FBI. I'm going to see if there's something there. I think what's going to be on there is that the FBI can only do the IgG stuff if there's no suspects. I mean, think of the Golden State Killer or, you know, some of these other guys where it's a cold case and they have no idea who the killer is and they have this DNA and they've never, the person who's committed this crime has never been in the system, never been in CODIS. So there's no idea of who they are. And now they have this technology to, you know, try to find family members and, and narrow it down. You know, all these guys that have been caught that way, there's never been an issue as far as when or why or how. Everybody knows it's because of the DNA. Why is that a problem in this case? I don't understand it. I don't understand why. You know, she's going to go into it and say and say what, you know, um, hey, this is uh, they use this tool that's been used multiple times. It helps solve Golden State killer um, killers, uh, serial killer cases. They use this against my client and we think it was wrong. And we have we have all these experts that can say that using this is wrong. And then the state is going to come back and say, then don't use that. We you know we did a we took DNA, we took trash out of a trash bin at Brian Koberger's parents house which was 100% legal. You can't do anything about that. And we tested it towards the DNA on the sheath and it came back as the father of the person who left the DNA there. There ain't nothing you can do about that. I don't understand why this is such a, uh, she's making such a thing. But then again, it's probably because there's nothing else to argue. You know what I mean? So if this is the only argument, it's probably not a good sign for Mr. Koberger. Regarding the defense's motion requesting clarification of the sealed order for disclosure of the IgG information and protection order, a defense experts or investigators should not be allowed to use protected materials to identify individuals or witnesses to contact without prior authorization from the court. And after showing why such contact is necessary for the pre preparation of the defense, this would not prohibit the defense from contacting potential witnesses learned through the sources outside of the protection information. The state respectfully submits that appropriate course of action would need to be for uh, the court to amend sealed order and disclosure of IgG information and protection order to allow Dr. Leo Larkin, Bika Barlow, and Stephen Mercer access to the IgG materials disclosed in the defense. The criminal investigators seeking access to the information should be named in the order, and those investigators should only be allowed access to November 28, 2023 letter provided by the defense that the state also requests uh, the following language for an amended protective order. Uh, the court orders that the defense counsel, Ann Taylor, Jay Longden, and Alyssa Massoff, defendant Brian Coburg, and a and Dr. Leia Larkin, Bika Barlow, and Stephen Mercer may view the materials provided, may view the November 28, 2023 letter contained within the materials, and any further dis dissemination of the materials or the information contained within the materials must first be approved by the court after the adequate showing by the defense as to why such information is necessary and the material uh, to the preparation of the defense. Additionally, no individual learned solely through the review of the materials shall be contacted by the defense or any agent of the defense without prior authorization from the court after the adequate showing as to why such contact is necessary for material and preparation of the defense. So yeah, they're, they're basically saying they want extra people to see this. We don't know who these people are and you know, they haven't even given us an answer as to why they need it. it, it it's just a lot of, a lot of cloud in my opinion. Let me see. Would a change of venue actually help BK? Does anyone in, in Idaho not know about this already? You, you'll be surprised. You know, there are some folks who don't watch TV or have the internet, probably some elderly or older folks. You know, there's also a lot of a lot of individuals who are out there, maybe perhaps. And like I said, just don't follow the news. 
at all and, and aren't on YouTube or TikTok. I can see there can be finding some people in Idaho that can come together. They can find 12 that aren't familiar. And even if they are familiar, that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't fit for jury. Um, you'd have to be able to come by and say that you can make a unbiased judgment based on anything you have heard. I mean, uh, when it comes to high profile crimes, I mean, people are going to hear about them. I thought the change of venue was already denied. It's not that it was denied. The order hasn't been put in yet. And this was the order for it. The defense is arguing that it's premature. It's, you know, they're not arguing that they don't have a case. They're just saying that, you know, we need to get a trial date first. You know, if we get a trial date first and we have all these other things set, then you can ask for a change of venue. And obviously it's going to change the trial date. But those are the steps that are required to be taken before you can request that change of venue. Daniel, do you think uh, the prosecution has more evidence than we've seen whoever did this, Brian, or, or if it somehow happens to be someone else, how do they get out without leaving more evidence? Oh, yeah, I think there's a ton of evidence. You got to work things backwards, right? But before you can work it backwards, an investigation to find you know the majority of the evidence, if not all of it, is you got to find out who it is, right? And when they found out who he was on December 19th, they arrested him just 11 days later and they had to find him. Part of that process was finding him. He was in the Pocono Mountains. They didn't know where he was at. They had to require Colorado license plate readers and the two stops from Indiana to determine that he went back home. You know, they had no idea where he went. You know, on December 19th, they thought that when they got his name and they found that he wasn't at his house and they saw a vehicle, white Elantra crashed in Eugene, Oregon, you know, they, they suspected that he was out there. You know, that came from the, the uh, airmail article. And, you know, they found out that it quickly wasn't it. How would they know unless they had a suspect already that this wasn't the vehicle and they knew that, you know, the license plate or the VIN number of the vehicle that was being operated? How would they know that's not the right car that quick? You know what I'm saying? You know, they had their name, they had their suspect. They just didn't know where he was at. And they found him. You know, I think they got out there December 23rd or 24th. You know, by the 27th, they're pulling his, you know, his dad's trash. Well, at least they pulled the trash that had his dad's DNA, you know, that they used. They may have been pulling his trash earlier than that and not finding any DNA or his DNA on, on the trash. And that could have been what confused them and maybe perhaps, you know, kept them out there longer. It took a while. And once they finally got DNA and they said, well, you know, it was, it was his dad's, they, they tested it. You know, I think that a lot of people get confused with what's on the PCA is everything. You know, we've seen one Linda Lane footage video Everybody thinks that that video is all the video that police have and that the actions of that vehicle that the, or the maneuvering of that vehicle was doing during that span between 320 and 420 is all the video that they had to determine that was a white Elantra and that, that was a suspect vehicle. And, that, and that's not the case, not the case at all. Do I think there's more evidence? 100%. You know, there's a lot of warrants that were done after his arrest. A lot of them were for his locations. You know, I put this in a comment uh, not too long ago. When it came to Brian Koberger, they had you know, they have him on camera, you know, his vehicle. They have his phone um, that can put him in his car. You know, he had to say that he was driving around that night because they have his phone putting him in his car. They have him on video in those places, you know, in Pullman and whatnot before he turned off his phone. So, you know, he, he couldn't say he was at home alone or, or any of those things because they have him there. I know a lot of people are going to say oh, it's triangulation, 27 miles, the mountains. The valleys, they all mess with that. And you know what? You're accurate. But what doesn't is the GPS that's attached to the phone. And if your phone is on connected to the network, then your phone is on connected to your apps, those apps that you give permission to follow where you're at. So all those times that he was stalking and things like that, that's evidence that's going to be out there. And although they used it, 
you know, in the probable cause affidavit for his arrest to get warrants, to get his actual GPS location and things like that. It's not something that's going to be used in court. What's going to be used in court are those GPS locations because they're going to be accurate down to a foot and they're going to be able to say this is exactly where Brian Koberger stood for an hour, didn't move. And if it's directly behind the victim's house, that's pretty suspicious, right? Because, you know, what do we know? We know that the that the house is clean, right? Everybody says it's clean. There's no blood trail in and out, but there's no DNA on the bodies, right? There's just DNA on the sheath. You know, they it was hard initially for, for police to determine point of entry because there was no sign of breaking or anything. And it tells you that it's planned. So if somebody's planning something, there's evidence of said planning. Now, a lot of people are going to think, well, there should be notebooks, things on his phone, things like that. But he's had seven weeks to get rid of those burner devices or or notebooks that he may or may not have had. But he would have had to have been watching them. He would have had to have been following them. And if they have his phone and they have their phones and they have their GPS throughout that short period of time, it's not like he was out you know, in the Pullman, Moscow area very long. It's only a couple of months. You know, They can interact with those and see when they cross paths and see exactly how close he was getting to them. They'll be able to see how, you know, if you've ever entered the building and since they have everybody's, you know, cell phone, that information, they're going to know if he ever went in that house while they weren't there. So there's a lot of things that you can tell just off of that one warrant. That's just off of one warrant. There's so much there that it's and there's things that I may or may not know. I can't tell you guys that tell me that this thing is solid as hell. There's reasons why they want to go to court already. We want to get this over with. You know, the only thing it's doing is dragging out the victims and their families and, you know, making them wait for, for justice. Yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence we don't know. We probably know about 10 percent of what they do. And, you know, I know a lot of people say, hey, probable cause affidavit is about 90 percent. You know what evidence they had at that time. Well, getting to the arrest portion is usually about half of the work. Right. And when you have a situation where somebody did something like this, where there's hardly any evidence in the front part and you're having to use DNA, well, there's going to be a lot of evidence in the back end. That's for sure. What are your thoughts on the Paramount series? Have you seen it since you y'all were on it for the worst reason possible? Laugh out loud. I don't know. I've seen parts and pieces, but I did notify Paramount beforehand. I didn't want to be on it and I didn't want to have myself or anybody else, you know, none of the Drunk Turkey show on the, on the video our likeness or anything. So they'll be uh, expecting a call from somebody very important pretty soon about using my likeness for financial gain. And I didn't get a, pay, a penny for it. It'll be interesting to to say the least. As far as what's on it, I haven't really looked. And uh, like I told you guys, when it came to Kim, you know, she was a person that called into the show. You know, she didn't walk into my house. She didn't walk into the studio uh, and tell me her life story or anything like that. She called into the show and then she called in afterwards. I was able to verify who she was. And that's what I have been saying the entire time. I am able to verify who she is. I have no idea if her story is true or accurate. Now, she went on a bunch of different channels and and those guys, you know, took her word as gold. I mean, that's their decision. You know, for us, we, we kept telling people like, hey, take this with a grain of salt. One, you know, this information isn't going to Kim directly. This is going through her daughter. Two, this information didn't come as it was happening. It happened days after. And three, she had to get those that information out of her daughter, right? It wasn't something that she gave up willingly, you know, and, and she even told her, I don't know, 10, 1030 in the morning when asked what time it was. So it was a guess, not necessarily fact. It's not like her daughter pulled out her phone and said, hey, look at this. This is when it happened. As far as Dave goes, I've said this multiple times on here. Dave is a guy that called in or emailed the show, emailed with proof of who he was, had pictures of 
how close he was to the victim's house. You know, send me his Idaho State ID. I was able to find him on on different Idaho University websites and well, not Idaho websites, more like fraternity websites. And I verified who he was. Now, does that mean I can verify his story? I don't know. Now, I do know and I have said this multiple times. Uh, I, it took me a while to get a lot of the information out. You know, I, I do things a little bit differently. I, I guess I'm not a, uh, I guess, an experienced content creator where I'm trying to pull out the drama and things like that. Uh, I'm legitimately trying to find out if somebody's lying to me or honest or truthful. And, and those things take time. And you got to build rapport um, with those individuals. You know, when it came to him, I finally got an answer of where he was working during, you know, at the time that the murders happened on November you know, 13th that morning. I confirmed that that place didn't open until 1130, not 930, as he indicated. You know, I, I got to thinking and I was like, even if you know they were open and, and he contacted his boss and I asked him about this, too. Uh, I said, hey, when you called your boss, you know, your boss didn't say, like, what are you talking about? You know, what four people that have just been slain? You know, I hadn't heard about it. You're calling in sick and you're not coming into work. And you're telling me this story about something that's not in the news that should be in the news. You don't question that. And, you know, he kind of said, um, well, um, you know, uh, you know, they wouldn't question me. They would just trust me. And that's exactly the way he said it and how he said it. And I think that was the last time that I spoke with him. You know, I can only do as much as I can. If somebody comes in saying this is who they are and this is how close they live or how close one of their family members is to one of the persons that are involved. That's all I can do. You know, the, the rest of it. Yeah. I tell everybody, take it with a grain of salt, believe what you want. That's on you. If you believe it, I don't mean to be mean, but that's what it is. I know some assume Idaho police are corrupted on this, uh, but what are the chances corruption like this would extend to Oregon police where they wrecked the launcher was found and the Pennsylvania two and FBI. Right. I mean, here's the thing. Everybody's looking at Idaho state police, right? They're looking at Idaho state police. They're looking at specific officers who may or may not have done something at one point that was wrong. Now, Everybody says he, they framed this guy. They framed this guy. No, he didn't frame anybody. They asked him questions without reading his Miranda rights. And then after he asked for a lawyer, he, he then they left the room. He then asked specifically to speak to the chief. And the chief said, you know, you, you have your right for your lawyer. And he said, I can't afford one. And you know, he said he wanted to talk to him. You can rescind your Miranda rights if you want. I haven't deep dove into the case, but from what I understand and from what I understand from what he's suing the Idaho State Police for, doesn't mean he's innocent. I don't know the, the details of the case or any of those things. You know, it just means that those officers made a technical mistake. They read him. They didn't read him his rights when they should have. And they probably shouldn't have talked to him after he asked, even though he, by the sounds of it, he rescinded his rights to to speak, you know, have a lawyer present. You know, the police don't have to, you know, when somebody goes, I want a lawyer. Okay. They just leave. They don't call lawyers for you and say, Hey, this guy's asking for a lawyer. Can you come down and be the uh, police lawyer for, you know, the, the defendant here represent him while we question him. That doesn't happen. You know, you say, all right, here's your phone call. Call your lawyer. Oh, you don't have one. All right. Well, let's go sit in the jail. Oh, but you want to find out information. Well, you already asked for a lawyer unless you rescind. Are you rescinding? Yeah. All right. Let's go see what we know. Let's go help you out. Right. That's how it works. It's happened multiple times uh, where they messed up is they flat out told him he was a suspect and then didn't read him his Miranda rights. You can't do that. That's that's a big no, no. You know, framing somebody and planting evidence, because that's what framing is. Framing is planting evidence to make it seem like this person is the person that committed this crime. You know, they didn't plant evidence. They asked him questions. I don't know how it is in Idaho, but in you know, from what I understand, when it comes to Miranda, 
you know, if you're asking somebody questions that would make somebody believe that that person is the suspect and not a witness, you have to read them your Miranda, their Miranda rights, you know, and them flat out saying, you know, and we think you did this and not reading the Miranda rights is what got the guy off. You know what I mean? What do those guys and that Miranda right thing have to do with the FBI, you know, getting his locations and finding out where Brian Koberger was, the FBI finding out who Brian Koberger was through the IgG. You know, the FBI arresting him with the help of Pennsylvania Police Department, who, by the way, that Pennsylvania Police Department don't have body cameras. None of them. It's a small town where they live in. There's no body cameras. It's not something unusual. It's not like it was something that was specific just for Brian Cobert. They decided, hey, we're going to arrest this guy. Everybody turn off your body cameras. They never existed, which is why they said we can't give you something that doesn't exist. They are literally asking for things that don't exist. So if they're still asking for body cam footage of his arrest, knowing that they don't have body cam foot, you know, cameras, that's an, an, another thing that tells me that this case is it's weak. Just to go back to your question there, Jeff. Yeah, I don't think anybody's framing him. I don't think that those Idaho guys had it. You know, they, they I think one of them witnessed the the autopsy. Now, if they found DNA underneath one of the nails of the victims and it was only one victim and it just so happened to be the one that that guy was present at, it's probably nothing anyways. But I mean, I guess you can, you know, you can look at that and say, hey, there's something weird there. This guy's been, you know, he coerced somebody into confessing in one of the crime. And now it just so happens he's at this place, but he's not there alone. Well, he's there with a doctor and there's probably other investigators. So when people say that, oh, yeah. You know, there's corrupt police officers in the state of Idaho. You know, the, there's got to be relevance. And when they ask for things like the training records, you know, and, and people say, oh, when you get them on the stand, they're going to ask them based on my training and experience. When you got to get there. If I went on the stand, right, and I was just a just a beat cop, just a police officer, didn't do anything else. And they started to ask me about FBI profiling. How can I say based on my experience and knowledge? So you, you can't. You can't ask me anything based on that experience and knowledge because I don't have it. So when it comes to these officers in Idaho, how are you going to get there if they didn't do the IgG, if they didn't do you know, the triangulation of his phone, if they didn't do the collect his parents' DNA, if they didn't do those things, how are they going to get to that point? It doesn't make sense to me. Like some of these things that come out are, are absent of logic. And I don't mean to be mean, but I feel like some folks are just looking at this problem coming up with an answer that doesn't answer the entire problem, just one face of the problem. You know, you have a four-sided problem and you're in, you're only answering one side. You know, you're playing checkers instead of chess. You got to look at the entire board. I believe he was there, but in Idaho and Montana, you can do this with no signal, seriously, more than two hours worth. Very rule. And uh, you better get a hold before you leave kind of roads. Right. No, I understand that. But my, my thing is, in order for his phone to have, you know, um, lost service, which they're going to know, right? They have his phone. They downloaded his, his history. They're going to know if it lost service and it just was lost in service and it was trying to to pick up, you know, um, service. They're going to know. There's a phone document of that. If he turned it off manually, they're going to know. It's going to say phone was turned off manually, right? You can't pull the batteries out on these things anymore. So either he turned it off manually or he put it on Bluetooth. So they're going to know 100% why his phone was off. For one, two, if it has to do with you know service, we would have to believe that his phone lost connection in Pullman, Washington, where service would be the strongest and drove through Moscow, Idaho, where service also would be the strongest without connecting to a tower, including those that were, you know, uh, connected to the towers where the King Road residence occurred. 
the incident occurred. They have those cell phone tower records. And I, I would think that if there was some sort of outage there, that it would affect more than just Brian Koberger in those areas. And then we'd also have to accept the fact that Brian Koberger's phone came back on and stayed on, you know, through the most rural part of Idaho, where you would expect there to be a drop. Based on those parameters, I just find it highly unlikely that he lost signal uh, while he was out there operating his vehicle. And I, and I find it more likely it was intentional. And if it wasn't, you know, something that wasn't intentional, was it the battery dying? Which there will be a report of that, you know, that this phone died, you know, turned off due to battery. You know, the phones will tell you everything. They'll tell you when they're facing forward, sideways, up, down. You know, somebody looks at it. Somebody don't look at it. You know, you, you say something around a phone. What happens? Go to Facebook. You see it there. So they have all that. They got this guy. How did they find you guys? Was it through that Olivia? I don't know. Kim had called me and told me she was doing something with Paramount. Olivia called me saying they were doing something with Paramount. Olivia called me because she wanted to get in touch with, with Dave. And so I gave her his information after confirming with him. And this is before I found out where he worked. And I gave her his information and I told him flat out right then and there, here's their information. I want nothing to do with this. I've learned my lesson. You know, mainstream media don't like internet sleuths. They don't like people that create their own content. They don't like other creative people because it takes viewers away from them. Um, if you're going to go out there and, you know, put your put yourself out there in, in that aspect, they're going to come after you. You know, when we went through our stuff, the lady flat out told us this had nothing to do with Copaca. We have nothing to do with them. We've never brought them up as a suspect. And we said, all right, what did they do? They turned it on us saying that alluding that we were saying things about Copaca when the only thing we've said was it doesn't make sense. Brian Koberger be the fall guy when you have a guy that SWAT took out. And, and there's been rumors and speculation that that situation where his life was lost, you know, if it was done improperly, wouldn't you want to also pin the Idaho murders on him so that you don't look so bad, especially if you're this corrupt department that's willing to do anything, including, you know, frame your people that are applying, which, by the way, Brian Koberger didn't apply for the Moscow Police Department. He applied for Pullman. So another like, you know, a little wrench there and that in that theory that don't make sense. Um, but, yeah, I think that's how they found us. Um, I told them flat out, I don't want to be a part of it. I know it's bull crap. I know what you guys are doing and uh, we don't want to be a part of it. And so we opted out and we opted out of that. Um, the British Broadcasting Company contacted us at one point, Netflix, a bunch of these guys. We've opted out of all of them. We don't want to be a part of that. You know, we've learned our lesson. You know, fool me once, shame on shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And, uh, you know, Washington Post did this to us. So it's it's shame on us. You know, we got screwed over in that last one. We took it on the chin. Thank you. I appreciate that. Heather Heather says we've always been honest about her. She has changed her story many times. Like, yeah. I think that the speculation aspect of her story has changed. And what that is, is like when um, what she heard her daughter say or her interpretation of what her daughter told her, or what she thinks her daughter said or or the, the dots that she connected from what she saw that weren't probably not there. Month after the incident or a few weeks after the incident, I want to say at least two to three. She said that they found blood in one of the washers and washer and dryer and that they called the police and to, to, to say that there was blood in the in the laundry mat. And when she told us this the first time, you know, it wasn't disclosed to us that it was 10, 15, 20 days later. And when I found that out and we were, t we're talking about it, I was like, that doesn't uh, that means that wasn't him. That was somebody else, probably a nosebleed or something. And she's like, yeah, that's what the police said. And I was like, all right, well. I can't really trust anything else you're saying anymore. Not that it's bad or it's wrong or she's purposefully lying. It's just she's connecting some dots that maybe aren't there and she wants to help. 
And that's what I'll say. You know, she's not, a, I don't think she's a bad person or anything like that. You know, her, her daughter and her son did go to school at WSU. Her son uh, was in the program that Brian Koberger taught. Uh, people saw her picture or her, she finally came out on video. She sent me a picture of her and her kids not that long ago, probably about a month ago or so. Because even though we disagree, I, I don't disrespect her or anybody else. But yeah, she sent me a picture of her and her kids. Uh, yeah, they were doing good. And I was like, man, is that your family? I'd never seen her before. I was like, is that your family? She said, yeah. I was like, you know, beautiful kids. And, you know, I saw the lady on the Paramount thing I saw for the first time this morning. Part of it. I was like, yeah, that's that's Kim. I can tell by the voice, too. It's pretty obvious. What people need to realize is I sped her up in a lot of the stuff that I released. And Paramount is edited. So she's not going to sound as fast or, or any of those things because it's pieces taken out and it's edited and they have total control of that situation. If you go on, you know, if you've seen the stuff that they, you know, gypped us with, you know, we had an hour's conversation with them and like five minutes got taken out or put in. I, I don't know. But when it comes to that stuff, yeah, they didn't, they didn't ask us. Uh, they show a clip of Dave too from behind. I don't think that's Dave. I think that's just somebody pretending to be Dave in, in, in a sweater. Uh, I think that is his voice. Uh, and the reason I think this is because I know that it didn't happen. You know, that interview uh, didn't happen in Florida. That interview happened in Idaho. Lydia had told me and Kim had told me that they were going to go and do this interview with Paramount. And throughout this time, even Paramount was trying to get them to convince us to get on. And I told them, no, I got their email address and I sent them an email then saying, hey, I, I've been uh, informed that you guys are doing a uh, docuseries on the Idaho case and are intending on using our content likeness. And we are absolutely refuting that you use that. And we are saying no. And they still did. So, you know, and they and they did it. You know, they, they made a lot of money off of those views and, 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 and things off of that, that me and my guys didn't, didn't get paid for. You know, what's right is only right. Right. You know, if you're going to use me and you're going to use my voice, you're going to use the words that I use and use my face, you're going to make X amount of money off of it. Don't pay me. And then maybe next time you freaking listen when somebody tells you no. Uh, that's just my my thoughts on that. All right, guys, I got to get going. I want to say thank you, all you members. I appreciate you guys. And if you're listening to this on on replay on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review. would appreciate that. But thank you, guys. Until next time. Peace.